Thank you, Bernard and Nathan, for leading us in song. Good evening. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, you can join me in God's Word in Proverbs chapter 3. I'll let you know we're just going to make it through 20 verses tonight in Proverbs 3. And uh, spoiler alert, we're not going to study all of Proverbs this week. Uh, we're probably going to barely make it through the first five chapters. Um, but these first nine chapters in Proverbs are really um, the father speaking to his son, urging him and trying to convince him to read the rest of the book, to listen to the rest of wisdom. So that's part of what we're doing this week as well. Um, and tonight, even as we study in Proverbs 3, uh, Proverbs is going to give, you know, sometimes your parents maybe would tell you to do something or not to do something. And if you ever asked why, what was their response sometimes? Because I said so. You know, and that, that ought to be enough. Um, but the father here, even in urging his son, is going to um, show the benefits. Son, if you walk and if you turn your heart towards the wisdom of God, it will benefit your life. Um, and, and so that's what we're going to hear. In fact, some quite amazing um, benefits that will come to those who turn their hearts to the Lord. So we're going to hear some commands and some corresponding rewards um, that we read that will happen to those who submit themselves to the wisdom of the Lord and walk in his ways. Um, so I'm going to pray, and you're welcome to join me in this prayer after. Father, would you teach us from your word tonight? Amen. Okay, we pick it up in Proverbs 3, verse 1 and 2. My son, uh, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Length of days, years of life, they will prolong your life many years. And peace, they will add to you. The Father begins with this, do not forget my commands. We are a forgetful people. Uh, what do you do when you need to remember something uh, that's very important? I write it down. Uh, I make post-it notes. I will sometimes, uh, I can't stand wearing my watch on my right hand. And, and when I know that I need to remember something, I'll take my watch and put it there because I can't stand it. And I don't know that, but I can't remove it until I do that thing because I'm, I'm just forgetful in that way. We set alarms, tons of alarms. Uh, well, God's people are forgetful people. That's why we continue to retell the story of Christ. Uh, we reenact the gospel every year, the Easter account, the, the resurrection account, the, the Christmas, uh, the birth of Christ. And, and that's why we memorize God's word. We sing God's word, that we would always keep his word before us. He says, do not forget, let your heart keep my commands. Embrace and internalize God's word. Um, God's heart is not just for us to modify our outward behavior. Um, God is actually looking to transform us from the inside because um, a heart that is governed by God, it, it, will, it will act out in righteous ways. Um, I was a campus pastor at a university, at Simpson University for a long time. And, you know, I was overseeing chapel and we would do chapel check-in and chapel scan, you know, because they had to go to a certain amount of chapels per year. And sometimes it became a duty to these students to come to chapel. And, and some of them would do something called scan and leave. I know you'd never, ever do that in Christian college. You'd scan in, and then rather than going and sitting in chapel, you would sneak out. Or they called it scleaving, scanning and leaving. And so sometimes we were trying to devise ways, well, how do we keep them in the building? You know, how do we make sure that they sit down in those seats? And I think, like, we're on the wrong path. 
How do we open God's word and create something that is life-giving that they actually want to be there? Because you can get students to sit their butt in a chair, but how do you get someone, how do you get our children and our, their hearts to be attentive to God? And that is our really our, our bigger. God is not just looking for outward behavior modification. He wants our hearts. Because if he has your heart, he has all of you. He has your speech. He has your actions. He has your thoughts. Um, and the benefit uh, we read, uh, first of all, he says, do not forget, let your heart keep my commandments. And the benefit, these are for length of days, years of life, and peace. There's the reward. There's the benefit. Picture a full and rich and meaningful life. Fullness of life. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want for our kids and our family? That they would truly live. Not that they would never have obstacles or difficulties, but they would understand God's goodness. That they would even understand sorrow and grief. They would even understand hardship, but they would have hope. That their eyes would be lifted to grow. And this is the benefits of wisdom. Now remember, this doesn't mean that if you keep God's commands in your heart, it doesn't mean a life without pain or suffering. That is not what Proverbs promises. It's not what the scriptures promise. But it's laying out a good and satisfying life. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to live to be 120 years old. Jesus followed God's commands, and he made it to age 33. And yet he was righteous. He, was, he stored God's commands in his heart. Of course, he knew. And so we, we hold this out there, fullness of life. But this is what we understand, that people who embrace virtue, the ways of the Lord, and who avoid vice, who avoid crooked paths, usually live better and live longer. Would you agree that people who, who are bent towards righteousness and the ways of the Lord usually live better and live longer? Verse three, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you or let them not leave you. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Bind them around your neck Write them on the tablet of your heart. What are we writing on the tablet of our heart? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse four, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. I'm gonna ask you a question in a moment to shout out in verse four if, if your Bible, not yet, but if it has a different phrase other than uh, good success, but hang on to that. Let's look first at these terms, steadfast love and faithfulness. These terms, these words are usually uh, put together when we read them in the scripture, steadfast love and faithfulness. These are two terms that are often used to describe God himself. In fact, they're part of his own self-description. Whenever you read about steadfast love and faithfulness, it's usually not about a person. It is referring to God. Exodus 34, 6 is one of the most often quoted verses in the Old Testament. It is God's own self-description with Moses. Remember, Moses says, Lord, show me yourself. I want to see you. And God's like, if you see me, you're going to die. You can't. But I'll let, I'll let my goodness, my glory pass by you. And as God passed by Moses, God declares something about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a, mer a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, chesed, is the word. And often in the New Testament, we'll, we'll use the word grace. 
that God is gracious. And so this poses a bit of a challenge for us, verse 3, to interpret, is this, when, we, when the command is, let steadfast love and faithfulness never leave you, is that your steadfast love and faithfulness toward others? Or is it God's steadfast love and faithfulness toward you? I believe it can be both, but I believe first and foremost, this is that we would allow the steadfast love of God and his faithfulness be etched upon our hearts, imprinted upon us, that we would understand that we are the recipients of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And it wasn't because of something good you did. It was because of something in God that he put, uh, he put his steadfast love towards you because he made that decision out of his grace. It was unmerited. We did not deserve it. But this is part of the foundational form of our identity is that you are one who are, you are loved steadfastly by God and he is faithful to you. Let that be the core of your identity and everything you do come out of that truth. Therefore, let us also display steadfast love and faithfulness toward others. Because we are loved, we are empowered to love one another faithfully. And if we do, verse 4, so you will find uh, favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Does anybody's Bible that they have have a different phrase that you'll find favor and good success? Does it say something different? And shout it out if it does. Repute, Repute okay? Understanding. Understanding. A good name, right? And so these are, uh, this always helps me. I love, that's why I appreciate the various Bible uh, translations and, and versions to unpack. Um, and, and that if we do this, you'll, you will find favor or grace and good success or repute, uh, a reputation. You will have a good reputation or a, a good name, you will have a good name in the sight of God and the sight of, of mankind and, and, and men and women and, and people. Your name uh, is what you are known for. I'm not talking about you're going to have a good name, a good name like Tristan. What a good name. Rex, that's a great name, right? It's not talking about that name. Um, it's talking about your character. What is your name? I'm not talking about, you know, uh, uh, you, 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 what people just call you by, but what they know you to be. Look at, uh, I'll show this to you, Proverbs 22.1. Remember, um, let's see, so good success is also your reputation, high esteem, a good name. Your name is what you're known for, your character. Proverbs 22.1, here's one of those sentence uh, proverbs later in the book. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor or to be esteemed is better than silver or gold. That if you are uh, steadfast in your love and you are faithful, that you will have a good name in the sight of God and man. What is your name? What is your name? What are, who are you known to be in your family? Who are you known to be at camp? Who do people know you to be? That your character at school what is your name online, how you carry yourself? In church, in town, at work, is your name selfish? That you, that's what you've shown yourself to be? Or is your name considerate? Is your name a liar or cheat or lazy? 
Or is your name honest? Is your name integrity that people know you? Is your name joy and hope that people know you to be? Is your name stingy? Or is your name generous and open-handed? Here's something you can't tell other people your name. I can't say, hi, I'm humble. (laughs) Right there, I've lost it. My name is what other people know me as. And that's gonna be based on my steadfast love, my faithfulness, how I live. Get to know a person's name. Can I talk to our unmarried people? As you get to know someone's name before you marry them. Not the name they tell you, but the name they show you. Get to know their name in their family. Who are they known for? Get to know their name in their community. Not the name they tell you, but the name they show you. I was thinking about name. Um, I, I had an interesting situation at this church that I'm in. Um, I got hired in the same town. I was, I was previously at a different church in town. I was the campus pastor at a university in Reading. And then I was an associate pastor and a teaching pastor, youth pastor at another church in Reading. And uh, I, there was a, a, the church I'm at now, their senior pastor was 68 years old and, and chose to retire and announced it to the church. So they went on a nationwide search for their next lead pastor. They didn't have the next guy to step in. Um, I ended up candidating and, and meeting. And this was interesting because you know when you candidate or interview for a job, what, what do you send them usually? Send them a resume? Your resume, and you're, you're, you're using all the best adjectives you can about yourself, right? You know, I've done this, and I've done that, and I've graduated here, I've graduated there. And, and, and it's interesting to get a piece of paper that, that tells this church who I am, and, it's, and I'm the one that wrote it. But what was interesting in candidating for a church in the town that you've been living in for 12 years is that they can know my name, Not the name I'm going to tell them, but you know what? They had the opportunity that they could just ask people. They could ask someone else. Someone who was on the hiring committee, I was her campus pastor at the university. So if they want to know what I'm like, you don't have to talk to me. You can talk to others. And I said, that could either really be to my disadvantage or it could be to my advantage. And the same thing is is with us, that we want a good name. Proverbs 22 says a good name is better than, than riches or gold to be esteemed. It's not about likes. It's not that a good name that you're popular. It's what you are known for. We continue in verses five and six. Maybe some of the most um, well-known verses in all of Proverbs, maybe in all of the scripture. Proverbs three, five and six. Sorry, there we go. You can't tell there's your name. Show them your name. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him or know him and he will make straight your paths or he will direct your paths. You guys have heard this one before. So when I I read this over my son as he graduated last month, uh, speaking these words, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, Uh, rely, Um, not just, of course we use the word believe, uh, to believe, but it's not just an intellectual understanding of God. To trust means that you are going to rely upon the Lord, that you have a settled confidence in his love, in his reality, and in his guidance. To be fully supported is, is to lean. I'm putting my weight upon this, and maybe this is foolish right now, I don't know who built this or how long it's been here. 
But some of us live to the point where we, we use God to steady us, but really we're leaning upon our own two legs. And if, and if God isn't real or, or the Bible isn't true, it's like, it's okay, I'm still standing on my own two feet. No, no, no. My life is completely, I put all of my hope and my trust in God. And if Jesus is a lie, my life collapses. It means that we lean upon him. Do not lean. And so here's where we use uh, the, the scriptures to interpret the scriptures. Because especially with parallelism, what does it mean to trust in the Lord? Well, the next line help, tells us it's about leaning. It's about leaning upon him and not on your own understanding. Don't trust in your own understanding. Now, this is not an anti-intellectual command. We are called to use our mind to be thinking Christians, to think uh, godly according to his word. But our understanding, it, it means um, our perception of the right course of action. And when it comes to God's understanding and our perception that we are going to lean upon God's understanding, even when it's in conflict with what we think is best. Because I'll admit to you, my heart and my understanding can be deceived. Have you learned that? That your heart, even when you're well-meaning, even when you are praying for God's you know, uh, will and, and to understand where he's leading you, we can be deceived. I can be wrong. And so my ultimate weight is going to be upon the Lord and his word. Has your understanding, has your heart ever been mistaken? Mine has many times when I've been convinced and I've been found that I was wrong. My understanding is fallible. Do you know that word fallible? It is prone to error. God's truth and understanding is infallible. It is trustworthy. I think I know what is best so often, but I have been wrong. I was a youth pastor one year preparing for camp. You know, we can always do games that we've heard of before, Kajabi, Can Can, and these, these tried and true games that others have. Well, I invented my own game one year, and I was so excited. It was brilliant. I, I had decided that we were going to tape raw eggs to uh, one of the teenage boys on the team while the rest of their team took dead fish and threw them at the, the, the guy and tried to break the eggs with the raw fish. It was brilliant. In my mind, in fact, I was so excited about this game and thinking about camp, this is going to be amazing. It was a horrible idea. With duct tape over eggs, none of the eggs were breaking. So I keep moving the line up closer and closer. And these kids are hurling dead fish at these poor teenage boys. The scales on the fish are cutting them. And, and so now they're bleeding and then one boy, poor boy, David O'Rafferty, he was at the father-son retreat last year, took a, a dead fish below the belt, and, and it just dropped him straight to the ground. And I thought, you know, maybe my ideas aren't always right. I was, when I was a teenager, I knew, I could tell you, I was going to be a major league baseball player. And I'm not just talking about like it was a dream. No, I was certain that that was God's call upon my life. And you guys, I got really close. I lacked just one thing, and it was talent. But if I had that, that one thing kept me out of the major leagues. But I got, and I even chose Cal State San Bernardino to play baseball. That was my, I put my trust and my, my leaning upon that, and I was wrong. God had actually something better. And, and, and when I began to follow his lead, or you might say, God, you called me to marry her. And if God ever calls you to marry someone, please don't say that to them. 
<laughs> not a good thing. You know, uh, but, but you know, I, I was convinced. And how many times have I been wrong? I moved my family as an adult man, as a pastor. I moved my family to another city, and it was two years of my wife and I wrestling and praying, and, and I was convinced this was the move. And I think I was wrong. The Lord was gracious to us, still worked in that move, and, and brought us back to Reading, and we're thankful for that. But only fools would trust in their teaspoon of incomplete, infallible knowledge rather than the infinite, perfect knowledge of God. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Not some of your ways, not most of your ways. In all your ways, in all your decisions, in all your actions, acknowledge him. That is from the word uh, that, that means to know. It is an intimate word. Know God in all your decisions. Have relationship with him, fellowship with him in all your decisions. That includes your career. That includes your love life. That you are acknowledging God in all of your decisions. Seeking him in all your financial decisions. Know him and he will make straight your paths. Or I learned it that he will direct your paths he will make your paths straight. God will lead you in ways that are right and just and true. Um, one of my youth interns said this, and I, and I love it, and I, I keep it. God is not out to jack you. He is not out to make your life miserable. We trust him. The invitation of Jesus is always to something greater, not easier. Uh, difficult is not synonymous with destructive. Uh, I, I got that from a poet, and I love that. Difficult is not synonymous with destructive. Some of the invitations that God gives you are difficult, but they are better. And trust him in it. He will keep you from crooked paths. He will keep us from going out of bounds. And the interpretation here, many scholars will say, is that this means that God will also bring you through that, that path that he has. He's going to not just point it out to you, but if you walk in his paths, he is going to be your strength to carry you and see you through. Verse 7 uh, continues on, be not wise in your own eyes. This, this uh, echoes, it's, uh, to be wise or to do things according to your own eyes, what is right or wrong, is a common description of sin in the Old Testament. But rather, fear the Lord, here it is again, the, the fear of the Lord, fear the Lord and turn away from evil or shun evil. It will be, verse 8, healing to your flesh and refreshment or medicine to your bones. The fear of the Lord. First of all, do not be, be not wise in your own eyes. That's just another way of saying don't lean on your own understanding. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Be wise in the eyes of the Lord. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Um, these are two sides of the same coin. You can't fear the Lord and embrace evil at the same time. To fear the Lord is to shun evil and turn uh, your back on wickedness and turn toward the Lord. And the reward, and this is, this is amazing, and, and I think we need to not just you know, um, skim over this. The benefit of fearing God, the fear of the Lord, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Does any, I'm just curious. I don't know what the other translations say. Verse 8. Does anything uh, have a different word? It will be healing to your flesh. Anything say something different? 
health to your body? You'll gain renewed health and vitality. What a great word. The fear of the Lord will be uh, renewed life and health. Literally, the word there means that uh, it will be healing to your flesh. The word is navel. Is this, is this where your navel is? I, I didn't study biology. <laughs> so it's right here. But it will be health to your navel. You're like, well, why just that part? Uh, this is part of that poetic language that it, it refers to the whole body. Like when someone says, I own 50 head of cattle. You know what that means, right? I don't just own the heads. I own the whole body. Well, it will be held to your navel, meaning your whole body. And it will be refreshment to your bones. It will be medicine. So, and I want to be careful here, but there is a physical and bodily benefit to walking in the ways of the Lord. And here's my best way. That obeying God is therapeutic. Walking in his ways brings health. There is health, there is healing in walking in God's ways. Sin sickens, obedience refreshes, brings vitality. We have to be careful. We can always go sideways with teachings like this, can't we? You know, oh, the reason why I'm having physical uh, illness or I have this uh, condition, oh, because I'm not fearing the Lord enough. We get into these, and, and I think that is a wrong teaching. We know that, that, that faithful followers of Christ, we are not impervious to, to sickness and disease. And remember, Proverbs aren't promises or promised guarantees that we will never suffer illness or injury. Righteous people suffer. Keep reading the scriptures. Keep reading the wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes and especially Job will teach us that righteous people suffer. Job had a good name in the sight of God. Job was righteous. And who said he was righteous? God himself. Have you considered my servant Job? It is out of God's words that he says that Job is righteous. There's none like him. And he wasn't uh, immune from immense suffering. But we know that, that living in right relationship with God is healthy, it is nourishing, and it is refreshing. Try that. Take two of those and call me in the morning. Take two tablets of, of the fear of the Lord and let's see the health that, that it brings. Um, here's other uh, commands with its benefits. Verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. How many of you have asked the Lord that, you know, you're, how many of you own a barn? Anybody? You own a barn. Any of you own vats of wine? Just curious. Remember, we go back to the concreteness, right? Concrete. But we can understand when it talks about your barns will be filled with overflowing, uh, your vats will fill over with new wine. We're talking about, I think, financial provision, that, that, that the fear of the Lord and walking in his ways is going to affect my wallet, my finances, that which is maybe most near and dear to many of us to say, don't talk about my finances. That this even, that here is an opportunity that we can honor God with our wealth, um, to trust the Lord, to know him in all your ways, to acknowledge him in all your ways includes how we spend our money. And the root of the word honor 
uh, here means to, uh, to, it means to be heavy or to carry weight. So when we honor God, we are saying, God, you, you carry significance, the most significance in my life. You're not just tiny or puny or you can't just be set aside. And so even my money is going to be um, according to your uh, laws, your, your commands. To honor the Lord with your wealth means to value him, especially in how you spend your money. First fruits here. Uh, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth. Well, what might that mean? With the first fruits of all your produce. First fruits refers to the Old Testament practice of giving the best and the first of your harvest. If you're a agricultural kind of setting here, you give the, the, the first of your harvest and the best of your flocks and your herds. You give that to the Lord out of worship, out of acknowledgement that the harvest belongs to him. You didn't make those plants grow. The Lord has provided and you acknowledge that. We get in trouble when we say, no, 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 my hands created this. My hands earned this. Uh, people in the Old Testament, they were forbidden from giving animals as offerings that were sick or lame or weak or blemished. You don't give God your leftovers. You don't give God uh, just the stuff that you, know, you can't make money on and, and, and so, okay, I'll give that to God. No, you give, you give up front and you give your first and your best to God because he gave his first and his best to us. In Deuteronomy 26, God's people were to bring the first fruits as a thankful acknowledgement of God's provision and giving the first of their crops, of their produce, was an act of trust and faith that God would continue to provide tomorrow and in the days to come. And the reward of honoring the Lord with your wealth, remember there's our commands and there's benefits. The benefits are that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will brim over or be bursting with wine. The vat was the dugout section at the end of a wine press where the juice of the grapes would be collected after being pressed. And this seems backwards to us, that if we give first unto the Lord, if we're losing to give of our wealth to honor God, we actually gain rather than lose, that we'll have more and not less. John Bunyan in A Pilgrim's Progress said that this way, a man there was, though some thought him mad, the more he cast away, the more he had. We have to use caution here. Giving money first to the Lord to support his work uh, in the church, in, in ministries like camps and others, and, and supporting our missionary efforts. Giving unto the Lord is not a get-rich scheme. We are not giving so that God will give us more back. God is given first. He has loved us first. Our love is always in response to what he has done first. Our giving to him is in response to what he has first given to us. And remember, Proverbs does not promise or guarantee that you're gonna have tons of money. The Proverbs do not say that if you obey him, you're gonna be wealthy and rich. Jesus honored his father, but Jesus neither had long life, nor did Jesus have barns filled with plenty. And he is the one who said, follow me. And yet, God says that we will prosper. There is health. There is wealth when we live a life completely acknowledging him. I expand my definition of wealth. 
I think I'm one of the wealthiest per- men alive. I'm never going to make it on the cover of a magazine, you know, Forbes or anything like that. But I tell you, I am a rich man. I am a rich man. And it's not my own doing. Giving, uh, let me be clear that giving the first portion of your finances back to God is a clear teaching in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament teaches about the tithe. They were under the tithe or giving 10% back to God, which when you actually add it up with all the, the festivals and everything, it probably came out to more than 20%. The New Testament doesn't carry, I think, the, the explicit command of tithing. It is acknowledged by Jesus, the tithe is. But when you ask and say, what is the teaching in the New Testament for the church when it comes to giving? We know that we are to give sacrificially. We are to give up front. We are to give cheerfully. That if you give finances to the, the work of the Lord, to the church, and you are uh, begrudgingly doing it, you are doing it under compulsion. Can I tell you to stop? Can I tell you God doesn't want that gift? That we are to give, the word is hilariously, that there is joy in being able to give unto the Lord. We are called to give proportionally, which means in keeping with your income. One might make $100 a month. Another might make $10,000 a month. They're not going to give an equal amount. They're going to give in proportion to what they have received. And we're also called to give regularly. That's Paul's teaching. Regularly, meaning let's not just save it up for once a year, because I don't save my worship for God once a year. I don't say there's one day a year at the end, I'm going to give a big old lots of worship. It's an ongoing thing. Some have recommended that as you receive, you would give in rhythm with as you receive. Maybe you receive monthly, that you would give monthly. You receive maybe twice a month, that this would be an ongoing reminder. And whenever I give and I'm open-handed, um, and, and I say generous towards God, it all belongs to him anyway. But when I give in this manner to my church, it demonstrates gratitude, giving back what God first gave me. I'm merely a steward of his finances. I'm not an owner. They, they, everything belongs to him. Secondly, it d- displays my confidence that God provided for me today, that God will continue to provide, that all my things belong to him anyway. They're his to protect And also, whenever I give each and every time, it dethrones uh, greed from the throne of my heart. Because, man, I am prone to be greedy. I like what Francis Chan said. He said, money does weird things to us. And he said, money does weird things to me. And it does. And so this is an ongoing practice that I, (laughs) I love God and I use money. I don't flip those around. I don't love money and use God. So how, according to the wisdom of Proverbs, how will you honor God with your first fruits? How old do you have to be to do that? Oh, that my mom and dad give. They got it. No, no, this is between you and the Lord. We continue, Proverbs 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof or his rebuke, his correction in your life. Have any of you been corrected or disciplined by God because of crooked paths? Countless times, God brings that discipline upon us, not because he hates us, but because he's actually treating us like his child. For the Lord, verse 12, for the Lord reproves or disciplines those he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. That if you are a parent and you have a child, it is loving to correct them. 
It is loving to discipline them that they might be trained. God's correction is based in his love for us. Discipline is painful, though it's a sign of God's favor and grace. It is reserved for those whom he loves and he considers his child. I remember a time that God sat me down for a month and really I sat myself down. Um, I told you I played volleyball in college. My freshman year, I played halftime. I was, uh, I was a part-time player. My sophomore year, I earned a position as the starting setter on the team at the State University down south. The, the, we did a scrimmage game uh, a couple days before our season started. I was so excited to be the starting setter. At that scrimmage game, I got upset with how I was playing and I went over and I punched a wall because I was angry at how I was playing. It was a padded wall and it broke my hand. I broke my hand punching a padded wall. There's nothing more embarrassing than that. I had to get a cast on my hand and the doctor said, I'll see you in four weeks. I looked at the calendar. I would miss the first eight games of my sophomore college volleyball season. I sat down on that bench. That was my own doing. God did not protect me from my foolishness. That month, was a very humbling month as I watched my teammates play while my bones were healing. God was doing healing work in my heart. That was discipline from God. He allowed me to face the consequences of my own foolishness. He did not protect me from it. You might be thinking, well, how could God allow this to happen to me? I did it myself and God's love allowed me. And I'll tell you though, I changed. I was one of the only Christians on that team and I'm the guy that's losing my temper. And I missed the game. It was the worst thing in the world to sit on the bench. I hate sitting on the bench. And I said, God, it's one of those promises I kept. I said, God, when I get back on that court, I promise you I'm going to be a different man. I promise you that I don't care if we're winning or losing. I just want to play. And that I will, I will rejoice and glorify you on that court. I'm not going to be that, that sourpuss anymore, that, that upset kid. And I was different. And it brought about good fruit in there painful experiences, and God shaped me through that. What has God shaped you through? What is he shaping you through right now? It's not because he doesn't love you, but he wants you to grow and to be trained by it. This next passage portion, and again, we're just going to get through verse 20. This um, portion is is bookended by the word blessed. Um, Blessed meaning happy or joyful. Um, The life that is blessed, I, I call it good life, and it really means the blessed life that God is leading us in. So I'll just read it in one section here. Blessed or or happy, joyful is the one who finds wisdom. You are blessed and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than gain from silver. Who's her in here? Wisdom, lady wisdom. Here she is again. For, For what you gain from her, wisdom is better than gain from silver. Do you believe that? Do you believe that wisdom is better than silver and gold. And her profit is better than gold. Verse verse 15, she is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. It's wisdom. Her ways, verse 17, her ways are the ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, to those who hold her fast are called blessed. Hold her fast. To me, that's wedding language. 
when you leave your father and mother and you hold fast to your spouse, you cling. This is talking about relationship with God's wisdom. Those who walk with her will avoid pitfalls that lead to shame, regret, death, and dishonor. Concluding our verses for tonight, uh, verse 19 and 20, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. The Lord laid the foundations of the earth by his wisdom. By understanding, he established the heavens. Verse 20, by his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. The world, this earth is not by chance or randomness. God created this world and he wove his wisdom into the very fabric of the universe. It is by his wisdom that the cosmos and all of its complex parts, these trees and oxygen and the sun and, and life and our DNA and our whole body is sustained because of the wisdom of God, because of the way he designed us. Now imagine that if God's wisdom will do this in our universe, what will God's wisdom do in the, the young man, the young woman who fears the Lord, who lives by the wisdom of God? And if we despise the wisdom of God, we are going against the grain of the created universe. If you go after unjust gain or ill-gotten profits, you are going against the grain of God's created universe. And as H.H. Farmer said, if you go against the grain of the universe, you will get splinters. You will, heap, you will bring shame and regret. And, and, and so don't you hear the father speaking to his son saying, son, I'm telling you right now, your life is before you. Choose the wisdom of God and you will find blessing and health to your whole body. And if not, you will heap pain and shame upon yourself. I'll close with this thought. And, and um, I appreciate that this is Bruce Waltke and his commentary on Proverbs asked this question, does Proverbs promise too much? Is this too grandiose? That, that with these commands, uh, you know, we're going to have uh, life and peace and favor and a good name and straight paths. You're going to have health and healing to your whole body. You're going to have overflowing barns and vats. Is this, come on, do we know that to be true? It appears unrealistic. Plus, we know from the rest of the Bible and from our own experience that the righteous often suffer and the wicked often prosper. The Bible is clear about that. But we also know this, that the hard worker, not the lazy, the cool-tempered, you know, not the hothead, the sober, not the drunkard, the honest person, not the liar, usually experiences health and joy and peace and prosperity. We know that. And history shows us that those who take crooked paths they might not pay the price immediately, but you know, in the end, they will. They will not get away with it. They will get what's coming to them. And I guess that's the message of Proverbs, that in the end, our choices will catch up to us. Our evil choices will catch up. And our good choices our decisions of righteousness and justice and equity, they will catch up to us. Maybe not immediately, but you trust in the end, whether that's on this life or in life eternal. 
they will catch up to us. The righteous person will end up where they belong. The humble person will be exalted by God, and the one who exalts himself will be humbled. Maybe not today, but in the end. And so it asks the question, well then, why doesn't God instantly reward our good choices? Wouldn't that be great? You know, I made a good choice, God. Where's the overflowing barns? You know, and, and, and isn't that what our kids do? Sometimes we do chores and we have things for our kids. And usually there's some sort of reward attached to it. But then eventually they just see that doing the chore that needs to be done is just a means to get what they want. Maybe... It's because we would see obedience to God merely for our own selfish interests. I think maybe that's why that there is, there, God doesn't instantly reward good choices. I think God wants us to love and treasure what is right and just and fair, regardless of reward. Even if we don't get immediate benefit. I think God wants our heart that we will do what is right, even if it means punishment. We will stand for God's righteousness even if it brings consequences to us, but because it is right. And I'll close with this story. Uh, we do a uh, sports ministry at our church. We do Upward. If you've ever heard of Upward, it's a faith-based sports program. Um, we do soccer. We do uh, flag football. And then I introduced grass volleyball a couple years ago. And we had our second season. We had over 130 kids uh, teaching volleyball, fourth grade through 12th grade. And one day at our camp, just a, a month ago or so, uh, fourth grader Adara, uh, sweet Adara, just full of life. She comes up to me on one of the last days and she says, she says Coach, she goes, I found this $10 bill on our court. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I asked my dad, and my dad said I should bring it to you. And I said, Adara, thank you. I said, Adara, I'm going to work hard today to find the owner of this $10 bill. And she kind of went away, but it's kind of hard for her to give that $10 away. That's like a lot for a fourth grader. And, and so she goes away, and I met, I walked around that whole day a couple times. Hey, did anybody lose some money? Notice how I don't say, did anybody lose 10 bucks? Because everybody's going to be like, yeah, I lost 10 bucks. Did anybody lose some money? How much did you lose? You know, because someone turned it in. Couldn't find the owner. Uh, I talked all over. And so by the end of the day, I went over to Adara and I said, Dara, I tried my hardest to find the owner and I couldn't. And so Adara, I'm going to give this $10 back to you. And she's got a you know, big old smile. Her mom and dad said that she talked about that forever. That was huge for her. But you know what would have been just as good for Adara is that if we did find the rightful owner, I think just as good for Adara, uh, the reason why she turned it in is not just that she could get it back, but that she would understand the goodness that if we found its rightful owner, that she could know deep in her heart that she did what was right rather than keeping it for herself. And if that is gonna be her practice in life, I think those good choices are gonna work out well for her. And I think that's what God is leading us in. We turn in the $10 because it is the right thing to do, because it is good, it is right, and it is, it, it is uh, fair. And we trust that things will work out in the end. In the end, doing right according to God always ends in our favor. I'll pray. Father, you've not just told us to obey because you said so, but you have laid out, Lord, the benefits uh, of what awaits uh, the woman, what awaits the man who fears the Lord. God, we also understand there is hardship, there is suffering. Jesus Christ went through it. He was, he was righteous. And so, Lord, we welcome that in our life as well. And we trust, Father, that we will live unto you. 
So Father, would you teach us what is right and just and fair that we might walk in your paths and would you engrave love and faithfulness and honesty and integrity and humility? Would you grave those things on the tablet of our heart that that would be our name that we are known for and that we would cling to what is good and that we would fear the Lord and hate that which is evil in Jesus' name.